0: Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through scripture with leading experts on the Bible. Hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kines. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at the thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at The Number Two Testaments on Facebook or Instagram.
1: Welcome to the Two Testaments podcast, a guided journey through scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. And in this episode, we're looking at Matthew 3 and 4, where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, Jesus is tested in the wilderness, and then he begins his ministry in Galilee. And today we're
2: talking with Dr. Wayne Baxter. Uh, Wayne Baxter is professor of New Testament and Greek at Heritage College and Seminary. in Cambridge, Ontario, which, for those who don't know, is uh, north of the United States of America. <laughs> so he is a fellow Canadian. Uh, so welcome, Wayne. It's a, it's a joy to have another Canadian on the podcast. I think we may be interviewing maybe one other Canadian. Right. I, okay. I am outnumbered by Canadians <laughs> in this
1: episode. So. <laughs> That's
2: right. That's right. Uh, Wayne is the author of Israel's Only Shepherd, Matthew's Shepherd Motif and His Social Setting, uh, which was published by TNT Clark, as well as forthcoming, if it's not out already, uh, Divine Shepherd Christology in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And that's uh, coming with Roman and Littlefield.
1: So, Wayne, tell us a little bit about uh, your... What attracted you to the Gospel of Matthew? And you've got two books here on shepherd imagery. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, too. What, what do you find so interesting about the shepherd ma- imagery in Matthew as well?
0: Sure. So what drew me to Matthew is just when I started reading the Bible devotionally, just as a you yeah. know college age onward, I really, what I really liked about Matthew was that he used the Old Testament so much, right? It's like you're reading one book, but you get like double bang for the buck because there's all this Old <laughs> Testament in this New Testament book. So I really like that. And then um, educationally speaking, I took a course, I did my MDiv at uh, Trinity Divinity School. And uh, one of the props there, he was an adjunct at the time, Donald Versipit. And he did this course on Matthew's gospel. And I just like, wow, this is so cool. And it's just like, there's so much there. And so I knew that um, when I would go and do Ph.D. studies that I wanted to do it in Matthew. So why I chose a shepherd was that um, at the time I was a youth pastor in Ottawa. That's north of the United States again. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when it was, I was there for about four years. And as I was getting ready to go back to do studies, I knew that I needed it's not crucial, but it's helpful to kind of have a, some topics in mind for PhD studies, and I'm a pastor slash shepherd, and so that was one of my ideas. And then when I got to Mac, um, Dale Allison, so this would have been fall of 2002, Dale Allison, who at that time was at um, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, but he wrote the, the Mammoth three-volume work on uh, he and Davies, Davies and Allison, Commentary on Matthew. And so, uh, five of us in the program were allowed to have like these 20 minute one-on-ones with him, those of us whose research intersected with hips. And so in my 20 minute powwow, I just got right to the chase and said, okay, here's my ideas. There's this, there's this, there's this. And he's like a computer bank, right? Cause that's his idea. <laughs> and uh, he said, okay, well that one played that one. There's really not much there. And he's over oh, the shepherd. Yeah, that's yeah, there's some room there. And so he said there's a few articles uh, on it, but nothing big. There's a guy at Durham who's doing his PhD at Durham on the Shepherd. So he, he later, uh, Allison sent me his email so I could connect with him. But yeah, that's kind of how I got Matthew and how I uh, wound up with Shepherd. Okay,
2: great. Um, now, what for you, Wayne, is the most difficult aspect to understand about Matthew 3 and 4? Is there any particular verse or issue that you grapple with
0: uh well i think with matthew three and four it's really that um like matthew three itself can get very um overshadowed by four because four is the temptation narrative which is you Mm -hmm. know larger than life and you've got movies the the last temptation of christ and (laughs) so three kind of gets lost in the shadow of four and then four itself the temptation narrative is only half the chapter, basically, right? And so we, we, in the church, we tend to focus on the temptation narrative or the testing narrative because it offers us really important principles for dealing with testing and temptation, that kind of thing. But we kind of lose the other parts of the chapter and chapters. And so both of those chapters are pretty integral to the the story of Matthew and how he unfolds the story of Jesus.
1: And how does that fit in? How do these chapters fit into this
0: broader story of Jesus and the gospel? The introduction to Matthew's gospel is chapters one and two. That's pretty standard. Some scholars extend it into chapter four, uh, but the consensus is that chapters one and two, that's the introduction. So there in the introduction, Matthew introduces us to Jesus, who Jesus is. He's the Christ. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. And so uh, like, he's the ruler of Israel. He's the one who's going to save his people from their sins. So you have all this rich Christ- and the explicit Christology uh, in chapters 1 and 2. Uh, he, he fulfills scripture. His mission will fulfill scripture. His birth fulfills scripture. Even his geographical movements in chapter 2 fulfill scripture. Um, and then the other part in, in the introduction is how people respond to his birth. Right, So you have the Magi who respond well, and then the Jewish leadership who respond poorly, and Herod ends up trying to kill him. So the introduction there, uh, we're introduced in Jesus. He's God's appointed Messiah to extend God's kingdom, God's uh, program uh, on the earth through the the kingdom of heaven. And so then you have chapters three and four. um, And in chapters three and four, that is Jesus' preparation for the mission. So the mission doesn't start till the kind of the tail end and midway through chapter four. But in chapter three, his preparation begins with his baptism. Right. And then from the baptism, we'll talk about that a little bit more. You have his wilderness testing, which is also part of his preparation. And then the mission begins in 417. Jesus comes into Galilee preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then in the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, you have the, the, the kingdom advancing through Jesus preaching through his words. And then 8 and 9, you have the kingdom advancing uh, largely through his works, through his deeds, his exorcisms, his healings. And then the rest of the chapter, uh, sorry, not the rest of the chapter, but the rest of the book is kind of this intermingling of the, the advancing of the kingdom through his teaching, the advancing of the kingdom through his, his, um, his therapeutic acts, his exorcisms, uh, and then of course it climaxes uh, with his death, burial, and resurrection at the end. So, so three and four are basically his preparation for the mission, which begins in 417 and goes till the end.
2: Now, I I hadn't noticed this before until I was actually preparing the questions for the episode, uh, is that the wilderness is a prominent theme that sets the stage for both john the baptist proclamation and for jesus testing in the wilderness so you have in three one in those days john the baptist appeared in the wilderness of judea proclaiming repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near and then in chapter four we read that uh, jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be uh tempted or tested by the devil is there something significant about the wilderness setting here setting the stage for both of these episodes
0: yeah i i think there definitely is and matthew actually picks this up from his source right he's using mark to help write his story of jesus and mark uh wilderness depending upon your translation wilderness or desert is even more prominent in mark than in matthew but yeah. it is it is important here specifically in these chapters because i think The wilderness setting is part of, in these chapters, it's part of Matthew portraying Jesus as Israel, right? As the true Israel, as the ultimate Israel, Israel par excellence, right? So, so for example, like Israel, he's called, Israel is called God's son in Exodus 4, right? God tells Pharaoh, tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, say this to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go so that he can worship me or hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Well, here in 317, God declares that Jesus is God's son. And then Israel goes out into the wilderness, right? In Exodus 4, that calling, he's to go out. Well, after the declaration that Jesus is God's son, now Jesus is led into the wilderness. Israel is in the wilderness 40 years. Um, Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. And then Israel is baptized. I mean, baptism isn't used uh, in Exodus, but Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 calls their passing through. They were baptized in the sea. So that's his terminology looking at that event. while Jesus here... Uh, God's son, par excellence, is baptized in the Jordan. So the idea of wilderness here, I think it's part of his uh, Matthew's Jesus as is Israel, as a true Israel motif.
2: Yeah, and those parallels extend even earlier in, in Matthew, right, with the escape from Herod, right? Which parallels yeah. uh, Moses' escape from yeah. Pharaoh. Yeah. The killing of of the the infants is also paralleled in the Exodus story. Uh, So, yeah, definitely that motif of Jesus as as Israel is a really prominent motif that Matthew's weaving.
1: But in chapter three here, we meet this guy John the Baptist, and he's in the wilderness. So, what is he doing in the wilderness?
0: Yeah. So, so John is um, he's in the so we know from. Isaiah and Malachi, that he is this, um, the one, that one prophet, uh, the key prophet who's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And this is something that John didn't take upon himself. You know, he didn't one day wake up and say, you know what, I need more focus to my preaching. (laughs) Oh, I know, I'll just focus on the Messiah who's coming. But we know from Luke's gospel in the opening that John's parents um, had the encounter with with the angel Gabriel and that the child, uh, Elizabeth was barren, but she's going to bear a child and the child's going to be special. He's uh, he's going to be filled of the Holy spirit while he's still in his mother's womb. And he's going to, um, be the proclaimer, preparing the way for the Messiah. And so John's parents invariably would have, as John got older, would have told him, this is what, these are the, this is what we heard about you, son. And so, so knowing that and studying scripture himself, he sees himself as preparing the way for the Messiah through his preaching, and so people are coming out in the wilderness because he's preaching repentance, right? And 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 so we get into this huge, um, this huge discussion as to where Israel was in terms of was Israel needing repentance, like some some. Scholars will talk about how um, there were groups in, in within Israel who recognized that Israel had kind of fallen far from where they're supposed to be, and they were in a state of uh, exi- spiritual exile, so not just geopolitical exile, but spiritual exile. And they, they needed, in recognizing that, they needed to be a repentant people. They needed repentance. That's the scrolls community, for example. Um, in their scrolls, we can see how they... Believe that, you know, the temple was corrupt, and that's why they came out of that, right? They, they came mm-hmm. to Kumon mm-hmm. they, they pulled away from that. And actually, kind of, by the way, like some scholars like Charlesworth and others um, believe that at some point, John the Baptist, he, he was part of that community because he kind of mm. fits that profile, his message. So some argue that he was actually, not for his whole entirety, but at some point he was part of that community. So it's the idea of coming out of Jerusalem into the wilderness, which itself is kind of emblematic of repentance, and the repentance mm. is recognizing that you know what we're not just in geopolitical exile; like we're we violated the covenant, we're we're um, not doing God's laws, and and we've um, the temple is has become corrupt, and we need God to do something. So He's preaching repent. Of course, repent for the kingdom. of heaven If heaven is at hand. And people are responding. Not everybody's responding, but a um, good number of people are responding, repenting, and as as a symbol of their repentance, they're being baptized uh, in the Jordan.
1: So let's talk about this baptism. Uh, what is John the Baptist? What is John the Baptist doing with these baptisms? What does this involve? What does it signify?
0: Yeah. So the baptism. Um, he would be the people are coming out to him and the baptism would be like the outward water baptism would be the outward expression of their, of the <laughs> repentance and their faith uh, in John's message. Right. And so they're coming out um, to the Jordan and he's, he's probably immer- immersing them. I, I know the word baptizo there can mean more than just immerse. Um, but I, I work at a Baptist school, so I'm paid to say, immerse, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> and, um, you know, if he was part of the Qumran community, right? In the archaeology there, in the remains, they have those mikvot, those baptismal, uh, those purification mm-hmm. um, tubs, where you, with all these steps that go down into it, and they do their their purification rituals, and then climb the steps back out. So uh, it would seem like they're immersing in their their purification rites. So anyway, they're they're coming out to the Jordan. Um, to be baptized as an outward expression of, of repentance, uh, kind of a visible expression of their repentance and faith in John's message that they need to repent and prepare, be prepared for the Messiah who is uh, about to come, which is Jesus.
1: So you mentioned this baptism. It, it's not a new thing that he invented or came up with, right. even though his name is John the Baptist. One of my kids were like,
2: "Well, of course he baptized people. That was his name, John the Baptist." It's kind of set for him. You know, I had a, once had a professor who, ins- who insisted on actually using the language "John the Baptizer," uh. <laughs> because yeah. to, because to say "baptist" makes you think that he's like a contemporary Baptist, okay. you know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: the patron saint of the Baptist, yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what
0: so he's picking up on
1: a Jewish custom that was already practiced before his times. this right?
0: Yes, yeah and and but the difference here is that uh, whereas the purity rituals that were being practiced at that time were specifically uh, connected to the Mosaic law, uh, here, uh, this this right is not connected to the law, but it's connected to John's message as the forerunner for the Messiah. So they're being baptized as part of their preparation for uh, the Messiah when he comes. Hmm.
1: And Matthew identifies John as the forerunner for the Messiah by citing Isaiah 40, verse 3. So he says, and this is verse 3 of chapter 3, This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So how is Matthew applying this passage from Isaiah to John?
0: Yeah, so Matthew, I think he's applying this this verse, and not simply this verse, he kind of takes out this verse. In the parallel in Luke 3, it's like five verses, this verse and a chunk of other verses. So really that suggests that the entire passage is in matthew's mind and luke's mind when they're applying this text uh to the Baptist. and so like isaiah he was prophesying um that like in those days in that day like that god was going to do something in the future and you know, we talk about you know god's future works as eschatological right pointing to the future And so the idea here is that uh, Matthew's applying Isaiah 40 eschatologically. So what Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and all these prophets are prophesying, because they all speak of that refrain, in that day or in those days, pointing to some future um, day when God was going to act dramatically and climatically, like in space-time amongst his people, that those days, that that day is now here. And specifically, because it's Isaiah 40, he's talking about like, Isaiah 40 is is about the Exodus, right? Isaiah 40, um, the Southern Kingdom had been in exile, Babylonian exile for 70 years. And then Isaiah is speaking of God's people's release from exile, but he's describing their release from exile using the original Exodus language, right? In Exodus, what is it? 12, 13, 14, in that area where God uh, delivers Egypt from out of their 400 years of bondage. And so in delivering them out of their, their um, bondage in the book of Exodus, the seas are parted and they pass through dry land. And so Isaiah picks up on that language, even though literally it really wouldn't have applied. But metaphorically, he's saying this, this Exodus from exile is like that Exodus, But even then, there's still a future great exodus. And so I think Luke and Isaiah, sorry, Luke and Matthew are saying, like, that exodus is pointing to the one truth, like the the great exodus that Jesus is going to enact. um, Well, Messiah is going to enact when Messiah, which is Jesus, uh, arrives on the scene. And you already have echoes of exile earlier on, I think, Um, uh, like in the, in the, opening in the introduction in the, in the Babylon, in the, in the genealogy, right? Three times, uh, he, he references the deportation Mm. to the, to the Babylonians. And in fact, Mm. within the structure, the the Babylonian exile is kind of like a hinge point. Mm. And so Jesus is, and the fourth, the third 14 isn't 14, it's actually 13. And so I think it's the idea that Jesus is born into this exile And it's from out of this exile that he is going to rescue. There's going to be a great exodus. He's going to rescue his people once again from their, their spiritual exile.
1: And John's message here seems to really resonate because we read in verse 5, then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him and all the region along the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him. And we hear in the following verses that that includes Pharisees and Sadducees that are coming out to him. So why are so many people coming out to be baptized by John, including the Pharisees and Sadducees?
0: Right. That's a great question. I mean, they've all been really good questions. So uh, <laughs> Thanks. the one distinction I would make I guess I'd make two um, so verse 5 Jerusalem was going out to him in all Judea and, and all the district around the Jordan and then talks about the Pharisees and Sadducees so um, all there does not mean like everyone without exception um, because we do know that explicitly in the, um, after Jesus cleanses the temple in chapter 21, and then the, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, by whose authority are you doing this? And uh, he says, well, you know what? I'll, I'll answer your question with a question. John's baptism. Remember John's baptism? Like, whose, whose authority was he doing that? Like, was it from heaven or was it from men? And so they say, okay, time out, and they huddle up. You know, okay, well if we say <laughs> if you say that, well, it's for men, then the people here are going to hear that, and they're going to be mad at us. They might, you know, do some stuff to us. Uh, okay, yeah, but but if we say from heaven, then Jesus is going to ask, well, then how come you didn't believe him? Right. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they didn't believe him, they weren't baptized by him. So there were. So when the scripture uses all there, it's not all. I would say it's all meaning all without distinction, meaning all kinds of people were coming to be baptized by him. Um, so some Pharisees, some Sadducees, but obviously a lot clearly from the temple showdowns uh, didn't believe in his message, but they're coming out uh, to be baptized. Those who are being baptized because they recognize that like Israel needs help, like they're in a mm-hmm. dire situation. And when you read some of that, and you guys would know that some of the second temple literature uh, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's a text, Psalms of Solomon, which is the first century B.C. text, where uh, the the group behind that, uh, behind that document, uh, considers the Jerusalem establishment as corrupt, and, and and when wanting God to purify His people and 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 pour out judgment on the leadership, so there are large swaths of Jews who recognize that, like we, like we as a nation. We've gone astray and and we need God's help and we need to have a repentant posture and and ask God to help us. And so those types of folk are coming out to be baptized um, by John.
1: And we see some of John's criticism of the religious leaders there in verse seven, for example, he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and says, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And then talks about bearing fruit worthy of repentance. But then if we jump down to verse Uh, 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is this (laughs) distinction that John is drawing between his baptism with water and this baptism to come with the Holy Spirit
0: and fire? Right, so John's baptism is water baptism, is preparatory for like the baptism that the Messiah is going to enact, which is characterized by the Holy Spirit and fire. So the, the Greek construction there it implies or means that it's not it's not two baptisms here. Um, this Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire, but it's one baptism that's characterized by the Holy Spirit and fire. And I think that characterization, the Holy Spirit and fire. I think it has to do with purity, like moral purity, uh, that expression baptized by the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think Matthew is alluding there to Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Like So Matthew uses, he alludes to Ezekiel quite a bit in his gospel. Uh, there's verbal allusions in 9, 36, 25, 32, 26, 32, I think it is, uh, in 18. Uh, and then not to mention the more, the broader uh thematic parallels between Ezekiel and Matthew. And so so Ezekiel is kind of in the back of Matthew's mind. And here I think it's is the, the background to baptize by the Holy Spirit is Ezekiel 3625, where where God says that there's coming a day when uh, I'm going to sprinkle you with clean water and I'm going to remove your impurities and you're going to be clean. You know, I'm going to give you a heart of uh flesh instead of a heart of stone and I'm going to put a new spirit in you, and I'm going to put my spirit in you. So the idea of God putting his spirit in his people, being sprinkled clean, removing uh, those uh, impurities, that that that's one aspect of purity there. And then baptized by fire, I think, is again, like Malachi 3, 1 to 3, I think is behind that, where um, it says that Messiah will purify or cleanse his people with fire. So I think that the baptism uh, by Holy Spirit and fire, that that that's that's the, the like that's the tr- true baptism. Like you've got John's preparatory baptism, which is about repentance, uh, but it's not the final baptism. That the final baptism is what Jesus offers in the new covenant and the, the pouring out of His Holy Spirit, which is you know Pentecost and, and that sort of thing.
2: Now, is there a way to read this the Spirit of Fire? That's kind of like this. So, let's say the baptism with uh, with water is this, like you've mentioned, this is preparatory baptism. Uh, but then, when Jesus comes, He's going to baptize the people, Israel, right? With uh, thinking in a corporate way, um, with with uh, what is it? With Spirit. So that's the kind of uh, like effectual cleansing, you might say, like Ezekiel, but then fire is more like a judgment. Mm. So maybe I wonder if this is maybe not a pure purification by fire, but a judgment. And so those who are not purified, who do not bear the fruit worthy of repentance, they get destroyed. And one reason why I'm thinking this is because if we keep reading in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the granary. So that you could say the purification by spirit. But then he says, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I I was just thinking this as I was reading right now. What do you think of that way of reading it?
0: Oh, that's definitely a legitimate way of reading it. Some people... Uh, scholars do read it that way. And you're right. Like the idea of fire would connect with what comes after that. Um, I think it, it could be sort of a both. And in the sense of um, like God, like Messiah does both, right? Messiah, Mm -hmm. um, Messiah proclaims salvation right not to jump a few fences but in luke's gospel luke 4 he proclaims salvation you know but he cuts off the bit about judgment and so because judgment is still yet future so um fire can kind of have both it can it can talk okay it can evoke judgment for sure a future judgment uh, but then there's still also that purification aspect so it could be a both and, or you could write an I could be wrong.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah, right. I, I could be wrong. <laughs> Great. Okay. Excellent. Uh, let's turn now to John baptizing Jesus. And just like the people in the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so also Jesus now comes to be baptized by John. Why does Jesus being baptized by John fulfill all righteousness? I mean, it seems kind of interesting and peculiar. How How is it proper or fitting that Jesus... Becomes baptized by John,
0: right? And he it says it's fitting for us, so you and me, John, for <laughs> us, to fit for all righteousness, not just Jesus. And so, um, the first thing we have to understand is that we have to think of righteousness not in the way Paul typically uses it. Uh, you know, Paul oftentimes righteousness is justification by faith, right? In Romans, Galatians, etc. Um, but that's not how Matthew's thinking of righteousness. Matthew's using righteousness the way uh, the Jewish scriptures speak of righteousness, the way Jewish wisdom literature speaks of righteousness, and so righteousness is basically, essentially, uh, doing what you ought to do before God, right? Like you are doing what you ought to do before God in His His revelation. So you are basically it's it's about doing God's will. The righteous person is the person who does God's will. Uh, the wicked don't do God's will. And so we have to think of it in that way, Doing God, the doing of God's will. So then on the one hand, Jesus, he's assuring John that by, by baptizing Jesus, John is doing God's will. Because when you read it, John's like, whoa, wait, like this shouldn't be. Like you must increase, I must decrease. Like this is kind of improper. But Jesus is assuring, no, no, no. Like it, I know it's odd. Is kind of odd, but we're we're still you're still doing God's will. You're not sitting and baptizing me. It's all is good. But then on the other hand, by being baptized by John, Jesus is fulfilling God's will because through that baptism, um, he is identifying himself with Israel. He is identifying himself as the true Israel. Israel's sonship merely pointed to the ultimate sonship and the ultimate Son, uh, which is Jesus. And so through that baptism. Uh, John is being obedient, even though he's baptizing somebody greater than himself, and Jesus is is fulfilling Scripture as well because he's identifying as he ought as a Messiah. He's he's uh, revealing himself as as uh, true Israel, as Israel par excellence.
1: So after John does this baptism and Jesus comes out out of the water, we read. The heavens were opened to him, and he saw God's Spirit descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from the heavens said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Is there something significant or symbolic about the dove coming upon
2: Jesus here? Don't you like that word alighting on him? Yeah,
0: Yeah, that's... Davies and Allison talk about like I don't know a dozen or more different positions there. Um, <laughs> and I guess <laughs> I think it's symbol- it's symbolic I think of just basically the new age that Jesus is inaugurating um it could be something else probably it's something else but it just it's symbolic of this new age he already has new age overtones in the beginning right in, in um, <clears throat> like the, the title. Like the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, uh, son of David, son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy, which, like, literally, it's like it's the book of Genesis, right? And so it's this new beginning. There is a brand new beginning, the first beginning of salvation history. We read about it in Genesis, but now in the Christ event, there is this brand new beginning. And John, in his gospel, will pick will do a similar thing, right? Alluding to Genesis one one. So you have that, and then you have the in those days, right? In three one eight, in those days, in that day, like like God's going to do something new and dramatic and climactic. And so, so I think dove symbolizes that. Um, you think of the dove and Noah, like Noah is basically a reboot. Mm-hmm. Uh, things start again from Noah. And so when they're in the ark, the dove's flying back and forth. Cause it's got nowhere to land. And, and uh, so and that might be in there. So, but it's, yeah, it's, I wouldn't go to the mat for think, any <laughs> position. <laughs>
2: yeah now when when God's voice says this is my son the beloved with whom I'm well pleased um what are some of the p- possible Old Testament passages that are being evoked and what what might that tell us about the identity of Jesus?
0: so in this uh, in this verse you, you have a mixed illusion Matthew will not the only one Mark does it Paul does it but Matthew does it more frequently than other New Testament writers that he'll he'll put together, two different, sometimes more than two different scriptures into one, and um, often under the rubric of just one uh, one author, one prophet. So in this, mm-hmm. this this is an allusion. It's not necessarily a citation. It's an allusion. And he's alluding, there's two verses that uh, scholars think are found in this allusion. There's Psalm 2-7, the sun language this is my son. Uh, so that's from Psalm 2-7, which is uh, a psalm. Uh, like a coronation psalm for the king of Israel and then the the language of beloved and or, and pleased is from Isaiah 42 1 which Matthew will explicitly cite with reference to Jesus Jesus in chapter 12 right he'll cite Isaiah 42 1 to 4 in 12 uh, 17 to 21 so those are the two uh the two texts that are being alluded to and 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 so through this this declaration this heavenly declaration Uh, Jesus is being proclaimed as the true son of God, like this one here. This is my son, my love. So he's the true son of God, not Israel. Israel was God's son corporately. Um, But that was just it. They're God's son corporately, and they only pointed to the ultimate son, which is Jesus. And then even the the king of Israel was God's son by, by adoption. Before he was the king of Israel, he wasn't really God's son, at least at a personal level or... An individual level. He only becomes God's son when he becomes a king. Uh, but Jesus is like God's son, the son of God in a way that we've not seen before. But he's also like the Isaiah passage, he's also the servant of the Lord because that passage talks about the servant of Yahweh. And so he is the true, the ultimate servant of Yahweh, the servant of the Lord. That's what we see uh, in those two allusions in uh, 317.
1: And the beloved, the son who is beloved. the Isaac imagery as well. Yes. We already talked about that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: Right. So Jesus. So, so, so so, yeah. So the Isaac imagery is that, is that what happens? How does that play out in the, in the Genesis text? You want to flesh that out? Yeah.
1: Well, just that that's how Isaac is identified at the beginning of that text. And we know
2: where that text leads to the sacrifice, to the
1: sacrifice. Well, the almost sacrifice of Isaac. So, you know, you're, if you know your Old Testament and you're reading this passage and you hear that,
2: right. you know where the story is now Right. And so, some of this stuff is disputed, right, in terms of exactly which of these Old Testament, you know, passages are being evoked. But I think on that uh, passage, I think when we talked to Richard Hayes, he mentioned that one of his students who... Who's Dr. Leroy Heusinger uh, has written a book on the new Isaac uh, motif in the Gospel of Matthew, which is really fascinating. And he finds the, these other interesting places in Matthew where Isaac, you know, the tradition of uh, the binding of Isaac, yep. right, in Jewish tradition, where mm-hmm. Isaac willingly goes to be sacrificed. He finds places that he thinks he sees in Matthew where that's happening, which is really fascinating.
1: Yeah. But I think Wayne is exactly right that Matthew is just so steeped in yes. Israel scriptures that. Yeah. all of these illusions are mixing with one another and contributing to one another right. Right. but the payoff here is the identification as son of god but we're about to see that identification tested uh so immediately after this we're told at the beginning of chapter four jesus was led up by this spirit as descended upon him into the wilderness so we're back in the wilderness again, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the devil is over and over again going to ask him, if you are the son of God, then this or that. And we're gonna talk about those specific tests in a second. But I noticed earlier when you were talking about this, these chapters in the context of the whole book, you said tested or tempted. Uh, So there's some debate about how we translate the Greek word here uh, what's at stake there and how do you prefer to understand what's going on here?
0: Yeah, I've, I've always, uh, taken it as tempted. And I think that's just through, uh, evangelical church culture. It's just, we take it that way. Um, but I think in light of, and I just thought about it as I was, the question was asked in light of the fact that Deuteronomy eight is is explicitly drawn upon. It's probably uh, better to think of it because the word can mean tempt and it can mean test. And so um, it's probably test if it's tempt, That kind of opens up the the question of the you know the impeccability of Christ. If Christ is God, can he really be tempted? Uh, was he able not to sin, or was not able to sin? And if he's not able to sin, and how is he really? Can he sympathize with us? And uh, I'm not smart enough to solve that debate. I'll go with <laughs> tested. <it. laughs> way Israel was tested, explicitly, like Deuteronomy 8 says, like, the Lord humbled you to test you. And so I think it is a better way of, of looking at it is, is test. Um, and so the devil is testing Jesus' divine son. He's just been identified. This the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son. And then a couple verses after that, if you are the son of God. I don't think it's a matter of the devil saying, you know what, there's a few other candidates here. There's John, (laughs) there's some other people. So let me just like I I think he knows, but I think what he's trying to do is get get Jesus uh, to fail the way Israel, God's firstborn son, failed in these tests. Because if you can get him to fail, then the mission of God is, is dead in the water. And so he, he he comes at him in these three different tests to try to get him to, to fail.
1: Yeah. I wonder if there's, if it's kind of a distinction without a difference, the whole tempt versus test thing, because how are these actually tests if they don't involve tempt. some kind of temptation, temptation. to do right. something else?
2: I think, I think the, so I, <laughs> so I actually, you know, do you remember when uh, there was that news about when the Pope was going to, uh, or was going to update the Lord's Prayer. Uh-huh. Um, and some of it had to revolve around that.
1: Lead us not into temptations, us- which is the same Greek word here.
2: Right, right. You have that there. But the one of the objections to the translation was that it implies that God leads people into temptation. So I was going to write up a piece and submit it to a newspaper or whatever, uh, an opinion piece on this. And then I submitted that piece to a venerable professor okay, uh, and asked him to critique, to critique my, my attempt at, uh, you know, giving an account of this and his point. So he, he said that in his mind, the term for tempt or test that we translate, perazzo, is that in his mind, the term does not take on the kind of inner life, Mm. uh, the inner temptation until later. Okay. So he thinks that's a later development and that we shouldn't read that back into here. Okay. Um, So that's kind of his, was his caution about it. Um, Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. what you do with that though, I mean, certainly I think that you you have to be envisioning with these tests, some kind of inner dynamics going yeah. on, right? And some kind of inner deliberation, whether it's yeah. enfolded in the term or not is another question.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, let's look at these tests. Uh, the, the setup is that Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the, the language of 40 there clearly is intended to evoke the 40 years in the wilderness, as Wayne's pointed out, that Israel's mm-hmm. experience is behind here. Uh, but the first test seems really relevant to that setting in that, Jesus is clearly going to be hungry after 40 days and 40 nights. And then uh, the devil comes and says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So what's going on in this test and what do we see through G- Jesus's response here?
0: So the first test is, uh, so the devil's trying to get Jesus to act, at least in my view, to act independently of God for personal gain. right? And that's something that, Israel failed at like in like multiple times, but for example, even something like the manna, like they're complaining, God (laughs) gives them manna and then God says, okay, but make sure you only connect, collect enough manna for the day. Don't stockpile it. And what do they do? They stockpile it because well, my neighbor might get more than my share. and, 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 and so they fail. And so he's getting Jesus to act outside of God, the Father, to act independently for his own personal gain. And Jesus' response affirms his complete dependence on God. Man shall not live on bread alone, which uh, John 4, 34, right? Jesus, the Johannine Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so that first test, uh, he he clearly passes, but he he utters and and affirms his complete dependence on God. So... He affirms that dependence through quoting
1: from Deuteronomy 8.3, right. right? So it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So then the devil, he catches on. Okay, this is the way that this is going to work. Uh, and so he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. And then the devil himself quotes from scripture using uh, the Psalms. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Uh so how does Jesus then respond to this and how does this work? I have to say, this is a really
2: weird test, is it not? Do you yeah. want to elaborate Wayne on what in the world is going on with this test.
0: Yeah, so yeah, I it, and the way you read that it's really fascinating. So he comes back in with scripture. As Jesus is this, you know, this scripture geek, and so he comes at him with scripture, <laughs> uh, thinking he can trick him to to again to act independently. But here it's, it's about acting presumptuously, I think, right? If he can act, in, if he can get him to act presumptuously, because that's again Israel uh, in the wilderness during their time, they they acted presumptuously, like um, Miriam and Aaron, right? Like it, it comes to a point where like, wait a minute, like. Moses isn't the only one who knows God, who God speaks to. I mean, God speaks to us. We're leaders. We're from Levi, uh, and in fact, in the early days, if you recall, uh, God actually spoke through me when we're addressing mm-hmm. Pharaoh, not through Moses. And so there's this mm-hmm. this uh, presumption there, and so uh, God, you know, strikes Miriam with leprosy, and, and they repent. And this presumption that really has marked um, the nation periodically, like I. When I think of presumption, I think of of Jeremiah 7, right? Where uh, Jeremiah is saying bad things are going to happen and and don't be deceived by empty words where people say this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. As long as the temple stands, God's going to protect us. Well, that was presumption, right? And so I think the devil's trying to get him to act presumptuously. This is what scripture says. Well, it's presumptuous for me to just kind of jump off and, and do this do this, uh, thinking that God's going to like rescue me. Um, it would have been interesting if he did. And, but you know, it got rescued, lifted up or whatever, but, um, he did it. Cause but, then that but what,
2: what, what is enticing about this temptation? exactly? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, I know. Right. It's, and maybe, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Um, most of us wouldn't think that that's a hard one to resist, you know? Um, so it might be um yeah i you know what i'm not sure to can we give
2: sure. Je- can we give jesus t- two out of three then cuz the- this one i feel <laughs> like is like... <laughs> well, like i mean the
1: idea is like if you really believe this then you'd be willing oh, to I act see, on see. it right, right? right you'd be right. willing to jump off of the temple and you would actually believe the
2: right, god would- right, right, right would right. catch you. I don't mean to three in the sense of failing, but I mean, in terms of the other two are clearly very difficult. Oh, right. You know, but yeah. this one seems like, yeah, I believe that. I, I guess I see your point, yeah. right? If you really believe it, yeah. that God has got your back kind of thing. Right. But. And I wonder
1: if there's, there's a kind of double meaning to Jesus's response here in verse seven, because Jesus responds again. It is written, do not put the Lord, your God to the test. That's a slightly right. gr- different Greek Ooh. word there. But is he implicitly saying to the devil, I'm the Lord, your God, stop trying to test me?
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think in the, in the I'm not sure if it's in Exodus or Deuteronomy, you have this refrain. This, that's sort of the refrain, right? Skin. Do not do not test the Lord, but the God can test you to see what is in your heart. Uh-huh. Right. right. It's like it can go in one direction, but right. not the yes. other. Right.
0: That's right. Oh. Yeah.
1: No, well, let's, move, let, let's move on to the third test then. So the third test is... Uh, The devil taking Jesus up to a high place where he can see all the kingdoms of the earth. Well, I mean, that wouldn't be actually physically possible. But the the idea is we work with this idea that uh, apparently the devil is able to give all these things to Jesus, all the kingdoms of the earth, if only um, Jesus would worship him. What do we see happen here in this interaction?
0: Right. So here, uh, the test here is to violate in my view, it's to violate the first commandment, right? Which is, you shall have no other gods before me. And so he is trying to bribe Jesus to to violate that first commandment. And Jesus, of course, affirms monolatry. Like, there's only one God who is to be worshipped, and that's the God of Israel, uh, Yahweh. And so I think the fact that Jesus is citing from these texts in Deuteronomy, it means that he's aware, of his identity as true Israel. Like this isn't something that we on to the text. Like he himself is aware that he, that Israel and in, in Israel's sonship pointed to him being the true son. So he's, he's very aware who he is and his messianic identity and different aspects of it.
2: The, you know, the other thing I had thought that when I, when I teach through this text to my students, I ask them, who is it that says these things in Deuteronomy? Hmm. Right, these three responses that Jesus says, Deuteronomy 8:3, 616 and 6:13. 6, in Deuteronomy, it's Moses, mm-hmm. right who always says these things. So I mean, I totally agree that he's embodying Israel, though as a faithful Israel to the covenant. Uh, in Deuteronomy, Moses is the one who is enjoining Israel to be faithful to the covenant, right mm-hmm. to the law. And so in some ways, I wonder if he's not only embodying Israel in terms of his fidelity and not failing the test as the son of God, as as Israel, but also he's embodying the identity of Moses, Yeah, because that's what then he will do when he goes up onto the mountain and he starts to teach, right? You kind of have this uh, new Moses motif
0: oh I, I agree he's already yeah. kind of set the stage for that uh, that new Moses or I mean maybe that's perhaps overstated but the idea that Jesus is like Moses because and you hit it before in the birth and infancy traditions uh, there's all these parallels between infant Jesus and and baby Moses and unless uh, anybody thinks it's parallelomania uh, in in Matthew 2. 19, but when Herod was dead, behold, an angel um, appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and saying, and in verse 20, arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life or death, that's almost verbatim a word, uh, an implicit citation from um, Exodus, I think 4:19. So it's almost word for word. So, so yes, yeah. Uh, so it's not simply parallelomania. I mean, he he does have Moses there. He, these are right, definite right. parallels there. So yeah, I, uh, your point about Deuteronomy six and eight is uh, well taken. Yeah.
2: yeah, it's it's actually it is, you're right. It, it's it is word for word because Mo, uh, Moses when he flees right from after he kills the is it after he kills the Egyptian when he flees and then he's he's outside of Egypt and then he's told that those yeah. who sought sought your life, are, are now dead, or whatever. It's something, yeah. something like that. It's, it's exactly right. yeah. like verbatim what <laughs> Matthew does, which is fascinating. In chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, we read about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, verse 12, we read, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And then he quotes this as a fulfillment of Isaiah, chapter 8, verses 23 through 9-1. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. And then in verse 18, Jesus calls Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew to be his disciples as he walked by the Sea of Galilee. And then in verse 23, Jesus goes throughout all Galilee, teaching and proclaiming the good news. Why is Jesus' ministry in Galilee here uh, given such prominence? What, why is, what's so significant
0: about Galilee? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And um, I hadn't thought about it a lot until I you asked me that question. And uh, I think there might be two things. Well, I, some some folks argue that that's actually um, Matthew's setting. He's actually, the Matheans are in Galilee, which mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay. Necessarily adopt, um, but I think the Galilean orientation to Jesus' ministry—I I think it reflects, on the one hand, I think it reflects Jesus' his anti-establishment or anti-Jerusalem leadership stance, right? Because again, we've talked about the exiles, the overtones of exiles that 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 uh, that many groups of Jews are, are seeing that, uh, as Jesus describes them, like they're, they're shepherd. It's like they have no shepherds, even though technically they have shepherds. And so there is this idea that the leadership is corrupt. And and if the leadership's corrupt, then that means the temple sacrifice are not working. And so you have different groups that are like waiting for exodus, waiting for a deliverer to take them out of, out of exile. And so, um, Through his baptism, Jesus is identified. We talked about him identifying with uh, as a true Israel, but there's, I think, there's also something else there. Um, Secondarily, he's actually identifying with the pious, right? Because it's the pious who are coming out to be baptized by John. And the pious are people who recognize that, like, we're in bad shape spiritually, religiously, we're in bad shape. We need God to do something. Um, And the message of repentance is resonating with them because. Israel needs to repent corporately. And so by being baptized, he's first and foremost identifying as the true Israel, but he's also secondarily identifying with the pious. So those groups like Qumran and, and uh, Psalms of Solomon and other groups like that, insofar as they recognized that Israel was in bad shape and needed repentance, uh, they're correct. And So Jesus aligns uh, with that. And, and, and so there's a new need for, for leadership because the present leadership is um, is not doing what they're supposed to be doing. So I think the Galilean orientation is this idea of, of um, it, it kind of I think it it, it reflects that anti-Jerusalem leadership um, stance of his. On the other hand, I think it kind of serves as a bridge in the mission between Jews and Gentiles. Um, like Galilee, of course, is you know the northern kingdom of Israel, but the the Isaiah text talks about galilee of the gentiles and we do know that there were some cities in jesus day or matthew's day um that were v- highly like they were very a lot of gentiles lived there like Sepphoris, mm-hmm. tiberius there's lots of gentiles there and so in evangelizing galilee um those gentile cities are part of galilee and so in a sense it's kind of um like a, a seed, if you will, to the greater mission, whereby the mission was always intended to go beyond the borders of Israel uh, to all the nations, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen. 19, um, but even within Galilee, like the, the nations um, are starting to be reached with the gospel of the kingdom. So I think that's, I think that's at least part of the Galilean orientation
2: now, how is Matthew interpreting and using Isaiah eight twenty three to nine one here in light of this uh, prominence of Galilee and and other things that you you think are important?
0: Yeah, so I think again along those lines. Then, like the Galilean ministry is fulfilling scripture, Isaiahic scripture, and even from the days of Isaiah. So even though you know God's people was you know was Israel centric. Uh, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, that even from the days of Isaiah, there was it was God's intention from the start um, to go beyond the borders of Israel in in claiming and and restoring a people. It wasn't it was never it was never His intent to just keep it within the borders of Israel. But from the beginning, from the days of the Old Testament, because obviously it's it's much easier to see in the New Testament, but. So it's not a brand new thing. It's not like the New Testament comes like, oh, this is never, you know, going to the Gentiles. That's totally, you know, off the radar. No, it's not. It's there from the beginning, from Isaiah and and Amos and other passages like that. So, so I think that his Galilean ministry is fulfilling Scripture and it's starting to fulfill the Scripture of of Gentiles even being reached with uh, with the message of the kingdom.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Wayne, thank you so much for walking us through these two chapters here. There's a lot that's going on in these passages. Before we let you go, we have one more question for you. We'd like to conclude our conversations with, uh, asking for a blurb, you know, the genre that biblical scholars seem to have perfected. We see it on the back of all these books. <laughs> so is there something that you would recommend to us and our listeners? It could be a book, but it could be anything else. It could be a TV show or a movie you've come across or a bar of soap. Like okay, having <laughs> guests, we simply recommend a bar of soap that you particularly <laughs> appreciate Uh, so it could be anything. Uh, would you
0: have a blurb for us? Yeah, you know what? Originally, I was going to give you a book, uh, but then I saw the bar of soap, and I thought, oh, I've got to go. I've got to go a different direction here. (laughs) You can also give us the book, too. You can do both if you want. (laughs) So along the lines of the bar of soap, I commend to your listeners, to your viewers, uh, duct tape. Uh, Okay, Okay. duct tape. Uh, Duct tape, not just for the obvious Uses of duct tape, which you know, my wife rolls her eyes at when I use duct tape. But um, you know, like you have wallets, and, and your standard men's wallet is quite huge. And so, yeah. what I did was I crafted a, uh, a duct tape wallet. Nice, all duct tape. It took me an hour to do this. So you know what? You've got like your credit cards in there. You've got uh, your thing for the for your money it goes in there. Your business cards go right there to pull out. Wow. Yeah. So so did you find like a YouTube tutorial on how to do that? No, no, I didn't. Wow. I, just, <laughs> I just made it. And uh, this is actually, 3. <laughs> this is 3.0. A few years ago, I made one. I, it was just, it was the basic gray one. And I was in a computer store and I was, I was going to pay the bill. And I pull out my duct tape, gray duct tape wallet. it's you know? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yeah he asked me 30 bucks for it I'm like <laughs> um, you no know I thought about it I said no but then I gave it to my son my son was I guess 13 at the time and so I gave it to his friend who saw it and was really enamored by it so I just gave it to him so I made 2.0 <laughs> which was black and uh, white and then and then I wanted it smaller still so this is 3.0 and it's left
1: yeah, if you're not watching on YouTube, you can go to and watch on YouTube just to see this leopard skin <laughs> duct tape wallet, which yeah. is really impressive. And apparently, there is a market for this, Wayne. So you know, if you're looking for a side <laughs> gig know. of some sort, I know,
2: I know. totally. because we, we know biblical scholars are compensated so highly, so this yeah. could be I know. this could be the this could be the way you make your millions here, you know, Wayne.
0: Uh, supplements my income absolutely. I know. So, so
2: we do like on our uh, social
1: media to put a link where people can purchase the things. That are blurb. So put that website together real quickly, and we can, you know, put a link to the Wayne Baxter duct tape wallets. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, once people listen to this episode, you're probably gonna, you're, your server's gonna. But I just say
2: it does look pretty compact. and, right, you know. Yeah. pretty cool. I mean, I, I, for the right price, Wayne, you've got a customer right here. <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: fantastic. Uh, well, thank you so much for the blurb as well. It really has been a pleasure uh, talking with you and. Learned a lot about Matthew 3 and 4. Uh, for our listeners, uh, I'm going to encourage you to resist the temptation to just stop the podcast here and put your phone away or however you're listening to it. Instead, go to Apple Podcasts, and you would really be helping us out if you put in a five-star rating for the podcast. It really helps get the word out about the two testaments. Or, I mean, perhaps even better than that is just tell a friend about the podcast. That's helpful as well. And we, this
2: is a test of your fidelity <laughs> to the Two Testaments podcast. Do yes. not fail the test.
1: Don't fail the test. <laughs> we should have found some some verse from Deuteronomy that we could have applied to this situation, uh, but we didn't think ahead about that. Uh, but thanks again, Wayne, and thank you for listening.
0: The Two Testaments is produced with support from Samford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kinds are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joel Zellner, and the team in the Samford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.